Hello, my name is Karin Pettersson. I'm Georg Dietz. This is the podcast Start Worrying Details to Follow. It still feels new. It does, yeah. And it's, it, it will continue to be difficult to pronounce, I think. But I like, I like that so What do you mean? You don't think I pronounce it correctly? No, not pronouncing, but so <laughs> getting Start Worrying Details to Follow is a long yes. title, but it's a long process. It's a complicated issue. The world is changing. Populism. The rrr. hashtag for this will be Details to Follow. Right. Which I think is the... Um, more important contribution. I mean, we're all already worrying, so that's not our that's uh, contribution. Our contribution is the ideas and the details. And the people who have the ideas and the details, like Pankaj. <laughs> yes. Can I just say before we introduce him that uh, can you all please go to iTunes and rate our podcast? Uh, give it five stars. Yeah, yeah. That would be lovely. Anyway, Pankaj Mishra. Yes. It's great to have him on the podcast because he's, he's this very original combination of a literary mind with a political, clear political sensibility. I, I, found, I found that really interesting. He's Indian uh, from by origin and, and English by uh, education, education, um, not by choice, but, but he lives in London. We met him in London. Mm. And um, his book, Age of Anger, I think offers a really interesting perspective on this ongoing topic that 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 we talk about here that a lot of people call populism that we also call populism that is a very reductive term <laughs> i would say yes. for a very complex um history and, and how complex it is it's interesting uh, to 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 have a non-western perspective on that and to have a perspective that goes way back yeah i love his uh, way of using literature as a way to understand the time we live in but also the roots of this anger that we see um, manifest now both in in europe and the rest of the world and then obviously his perspective his non-eurocentric uh, perspective uh, coming from india he has a global outlook that i think is very useful and uh, i learned a lot both from reading the book but also from talking to him i love this conversation Thanks for having us. Pleasure. Um, we talked a lot about uh, populism, obviously, whatever the meaning of the word is, actually. Um, and you have, a, I think, very specific opinion about that, um, as you have a specific opinion about a lot of words that are used these days um, to explain what's happening. Um, interestingly enough, your book about populism or not populism, about anger, uh, goes way, way back to explain what's happening. I think that's a unique position uh, to take. Can you you go back basically to where Enlightenment started or this rational, whatever system yeah. of government uh, emerged? And can you can you explain the, the argument to go that, that far back sure. to, to, to look at today's problems? I suppose, you know, uh, when we talk about the current crisis in the context of populism, what we are really saying is that uh, mainstream political parties and institutions are failing to perform. They are mostly dysfunctional. And so all kinds of outsiders or apolitical figures or even anti-political figures have seized the initiative and um, claim to be representing the people, the people 
define in in, in particular ways. So that's populism, um, which is a response to large political dysfunction and an economy that is breeding inequality. Uh, what I try to argue in the book is that the modern world, right from the very beginning, in late 18th century, and then all through the 19th century, has been beset by crisis. It's because of certain contradictions within the project of modernity, which have become bigger and bigger, and now they are global in scope. And those contradictions have always caused crisis. Um, and that crisis has become much bigger today because it now um, covers large parts of the world which were not part of the modern world for a long time. And then most importantly, that crisis has erupted in the very heart of the modern West, the countries that had held themselves up as models to the rest of the world, who had offered their history as an example of how one should progress. So that is, uh, you know, the broad argument of the book to look at this particular history that has been offered by the winners by the winners of the last 200 years Britain and the United States and to examine that and to see to what extent is it also the history of a large majority of the world's population it turns out that they have had a very different experience of the modern world that they have experienced the modern world as mostly crisis and trauma can we do you can we go back with you in time to, to that uh period. Uh, maybe it's important to say that a lot of what you use in the book is literature. So you use literature as um, to, a means to convey or to, to, to explore a political argument, which I think is very interesting. Um, maybe it's a failure on part of the political literature that you point to there. That is more interesting to engage in that. But let's go specifically, uh, that's more Dostoevsky and that's more the 19th century reaction already to to the contradictions of, of, as you say, modernity at the beginning of the, of the concept. But, but let's go back to that or point of origins. There's what's happening. There's, you go back to a few thinkers, Voltaire, Rousseau. You're very, um, engaging with Rousseau. You're, you're very sympathetic in a way. You think he's, he's the, the voice of the dissenting, uh, the, the dissenting voice of modernity, the dark voice. Um, at the same time, uh, that he's, part of a whole roster of thinkers trying to figure out what the new society will be. A new society that is not governed by the authority of custom and tradition or religious um, uh, hierarchy or, or feudal hierarchy of any sort. So people like him uh, in the late 19th, in the late 18th century in Western Europe and America who are aware that they are now embarking upon a new project altogether that the old monarchies, the old uh, systems of governance are slowly being undermined and that um, the, 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 the sort of rising middle classes, the rising bourgeoisie have more scope to determine what kind of society they want for themselves and what kind of rule they want for themselves. So he's one of the many thinkers uh, very focused on this issue and how are people to live together, what kind of rules they should form for themselves. Now, obviously, one of the answers given at that time is that because Europe has lived through so many wars, is that commerce, trade, a society devoted to the pursuit of material goods might be a way out of this trap of violence, religious violence, sectarian conflict. And many people, Montesquieu, Voltaire, these are these are people very much 
on board with this idea and their experience of England convinces them that this is perhaps the way to go for, for France as well. Here is this figure from Geneva uh, with a kind of provincial sort of background and poverty-stricken uh, childhood who is arguing that this society that is being formulated, a society premised on competition, vanity, individualism, is going to spiritually damage, first of all, uh, human individuals and leave them restless, dissatisfied. So at a very fundamental level, it's a, it's a, it's a critique on moral and psychological grounds of the new commercial society that is being formulated in the late 18th century. And his answer is that we need to think politically, we need to think about political community, we need to think about how is the individual going to be free in such a society where there are so many demands, so many demands being placed on his, on his, on his soul. Um, and in the process, he defines and, you know, he offers many different solutions and contradictory solutions often. He defines a certain reaction to this new cosmopolitan universalist society that is being offered both in France and in, and in, and in, and in Britain at the time. And uh, as the way I describe it, it's the Germans who don't have a country yet, who don't have a nation state yet, who are living in these uh, patchwork of sort of, you know, uh, principalities and, 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 and sort of really fragmented territories who respond to this universalist situa- civilization that comes to them, first of all, through Napoleon. And who feel this as as something oppressive, who become great readers of Rousseau and who start to sort of formulate a response to this rationalistic, universalistic civilization by positing ideas of cultural nationalism, of cultural unity, of cultural identity. So that is the sort of, I I think, uh, for me, that is the fundamental conflict of the modern world, the German response to French universalism. Mm. And over time, we have seen variations of that in various, in, in, in different parts of the world, first Russia, Japan, large parts of post-colonial Asia and Africa, this assertion of cultural identity, this assertion of cultural community and also political community against these sort of universalizing forces, which are backed by imperialism, of course. Can you, um, if you, uh, going from that, um, starting point and thinking about the last couple of decades, maybe the last since I guess the end of the Cold War, you do see an escalation. You, you talk about uh, backlash against uh, globalization and how it reaches around the the world. But what has how do you what has happened in in the last twenty years in your um, in your thinking that has um, increased or worsened the situation? Because you do talk about this age of anger as something new in scale and scope. Well, I think you know. The last three, two, three decades of globalization, we've seen these relatively small-scale ideas that people in the late 18th century were offering of the acquisitive, competitive individual. You know, their ideas at that point were still confined to the territories they were they were living in. I mean, they were you know occasionally talking about the rest of the world, but uh, they weren't really thinking of turning the whole world, the entire population, world's entire population, into their own image. What has happened in the last three decades is this, uh, we've seen an incredibly ambitious and powerful program of universalization, of turning individuals around the world over into this image of the essentially the American entrepreneur, 
the individual who competes in the marketplace, uh, who doesn't actually need to rely upon the state and the government. The state and the government needs to step back and liberate the individual and his or her entrepreneurial energy. So, you know, what we call the new liberal ethic. Uh, we've seen that exported around the world and not just exported, but often imposed on, 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 on many countries. And most countries have found themselves with very little choice except to embrace this. You know, as long as there was socialism or socialist regimes, there were some other options in view. But post-89, socialism has been um, ideologically delegitimized. So as people kept saying, there is no alternative. There is only one way to go. And so what has happened with the explosion of hyper-individualism, there's been a kind of, you know, both quantitative and qualitative change in that many more people have entered the modern world without the protection of their nation states, without the protection that national sovereignty has offered to, to you know, traditionally offered since at least the last 200 years to many people. So you have individuals basically competing or finding themselves exposed in the space of the global, whether it's, you know, an, un an unemployed young man in India or it's a, it's a middle-aged uh, working class man in America who's suddenly been laid off because factories have been relocated. So suddenly you find yourself exposed to the fluctuations, opaque processes of the market, of the global market, and find that your nation states, your political representatives do not represent you in, in, in the way they were, they, were, they were supposed to, that they are beholden to or rendered important by large financial business interests. So this is something unprecedented that, you know, for a long time, the project of individual freedom, the project of equality, these were pursued under the auspices of the nation state, the sovereign nation state. The fact that nation states have lost to a great degree their sovereignty, and I know the ones, the nation states, surprisingly, that are relatively stable, like China, are the ones that I insist on their sovereignty. But people in countries like India, you know, not to mention the United States, where there has been this great investment in the idea of markets being the ultimate arbiter and the state needing to step back from its social welfareist commitments, you have seen the undermining of the social contract and uh, an explosion in ressentiment because people can see very clearly that the benefits of economic growth, and there has been rapid economic growth, have gone to a tiny minority and the promise of meritocracy. All those promises that were made originally in the late 18th century, you know, people insisting on talent, merit over hereditary birth, all these promises are actually false. People who already have money can perpetuate their wealth and privilege for much longer, pass on their privileges to their children and to the grandchildren. So, that revelation that we've lived through a fraud, that we've lived through an ideological fraud, has caused this, this, this enormous anger that we see globally today. But would you, uh, I guess going back to this very simplistic argument that goes on about populism where some people would explain it with economic factors and some people would say, no, it's a, it's a cultural war, it's, a, it's about identity politics, whatever. Um, I, I'm just thinking about... Um, is it, in your mind, because you talk about both, really, you talk about disappointment with 
the welfare state or disappointment with economic promises uh, that never uh, that never materialized or maybe that were there and then were, were taken away. But you're also talking about the disappointment with promises about freedom, uh, about uh, an idea of, um, I, I guess, self-sufficiency or... Uh, so yeah, the fact that you know, individual freedom that. is offered yes. and yet individuals find themselves, that is a great promise that, you know, makes people leave their rural habitats and move to the big city. I mean, that is the case in, in India. Yeah. Literally hundreds of millions are embarked upon this project mm. and yet they find themselves more enslaved and, and in, in a way that they cannot really identify, you know, whether in their jobs or in the way they think, uh, their, their physical mobility, all these things they find more restrictive than before. So a lot of people experience this promise of individual freedom and individual autonomy, again, as a deception. And that enrages them further. So it's not just economic inequality, but it's also the fact that many of these promises of, of, of the modern world, for, for, for many people, turn out to be false promises. Mm. And the realization that these promises can really only be realized at a higher level of inherited privilege is something that enrages more people because equality, I mean, one of the things I argue is that we have to understand what is happening today through the extraordinary success of the democratic idea. The fact that we all believe in democracy, democracy as a promise of equality. That has undermined so many different hierarchical systems, whether it's the class system in this country, the caste system in India, that is being radically transformed because of the democratic revolution. But what happens when you promise equality and your political and economic institutions are unable to deliver equality? You know, previously we all lived in hierarchical societies. Nobody was really aspiring for equality. Um, so this kind of rage or resentment was not on the cards at all. Uh, this only rises because this promise has become so potent and seductive. And it's also conjoined with the promise of prosperity. That is the main promise of globalization. Yeah. That we can all make it. That we can all be wealthy. The rising tide of globalization lifts all boards. That has been the propaganda for a long time. But um, underlying your argument is always, I think, the question, what is the other option? Um, and, and it could be sort of just in a binary way that you think the old order had certain aspects that you find are destroyed by modernity. You disrupt destructive forces of modernity a lot. But, but maybe individualism is a good starting point for that. So, if, or, or your concept of the modern or, or, or of, of, of another form of individualism. I'm, I'm curious about that. I mean, and that's eventually, I think, What, what's interesting about this approach to go back, because you, you, ideally you would find in the past sort of um, ideas that have been sort of forgotten or, or pushed apart and that you could reintegrate in, into thinking of how modernity works, because you can't do away with modernity. No, no, so we're condemned and, to be. We're condemned to be and, and there is maybe something uh, for, for either in Rousseau or in... in, in Thorough, or, or I'm, I'm curious about what what that other individualism is, because you're not anti-individualist per se. No, I'm not. Look, uh, the people that I uh, admire, like Gandhi or or, or, or Tagore or, or Martin Luther King, they were also confronting the problem of individualism, the problem of uh, collectives deciding that they could only build their identity and unity by excluding, demonizing other people, which is a problem that we see today. So they were really very, very earnestly engaged in grappling 
with these problems that they'd identified very clearly coming from, you know, coming from minorities, which had traditionally been most victimized by the modern project. Which is interesting. So, as you said, Rousseau so is an I, outsider, you're an outsider. Absolutely. Germans I think, you know, what, what I'm closest to is the tradition of the outsider, because yeah. I don't belong to the winners of history. You know, I'm here as a result of a historical accident, um, a series of accidents. But my thinking, uh, my loyalties are to this tradition of outsider because I am an outsider in this world and indeed also within in, in India where my own kind of westernized education has, makes me a different kind of outsider there. So uh, looking at it from the perspective of the outsider, you can identify very clearly that individualism as a project is a radical project, first of all. People have not lived like that ever project, before in yeah. human history. Unless we recognize a truly radical utopian nature of this project, we won't really get much. Uh, we won't get anywhere. So first we have to recognize that. And then to also see that this project, which has, can be deeply destructive of all kinds of things that make human lives meaningful, solidarity, community, sense of belonging, some sense of stability, um, some sense of comradeship, fraternity, this project, if it's unleashed, if there are no checks on it, which is also, which has been the case in the last uh, two, three decades or so, will eventually lead to a kind of global civil war, a war of all against all, of people shouting at each other, which is, which is something you see now in, in, in many countries. So this tendency has to be constrained. And for a long time, it was constrained by various intermediate institutions, you know, whether it's trade unions or guilds or cooperatives and various other church. Church, absolutely, a hugely important institution. Um, so modernization, even though traumatic for many people, uprooting, dispossessing many people, uh, they had still some recourse to these institutions where, you know, their wounds could be healed. But we know that over the last, uh, several decades, those intermediate intermediate institutions have been undermined. So what you're then left with are the political institutions of the nation state. You know, there are some countries where local government is, is still important and that is a great relief for them because you can, you know, you can still feel represented, you can still feel democracy is working because your local representatives are responsive to you. But in many countries, the federal government, local government does not quite exist. I mean, particularly in, 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 in places like uh, like Britain. So you feel um, truly exposed for the very first time in human history, lost in this vast space of the global, which has no clear horizons, no clear limits. So this is a kind of, really a kind of existential fear that many people now feel, which has led to phenomena like Brexit and Trump. And that is why I keep insisting, you know, that it's not simply explained by political, economic uh, modes of analysis, you know, we just can't speak of class in the same way that we used to. We can't speak of economic self-interest the way we used to. We have to think more about emotions, what kind of emotions people feel in certain socioeconomic situations during moments of, during moments of crisis, um, such as ressentiment, feeling of humiliation, feeling of fear. And, and those, is, those are the feelings I foreground in the book using literature, which is which is a great guide because literature is the one um, uh, realm of knowledge that tells you about human beings as contradictory beings, people who are, cannot be defined by 
economic self-interest or, 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 or reason or, or sort of rational motivation that um, they are influenced by all kinds of different things. Their cells are dynamic things, constantly being reshaped, interaction with their socio-political circumstances. People say politics has become so volatile, it's very difficult to predict what's going to happen. I think it's because we had invested too much in rational modes of analysis, you know, data analysis, polling, all of that, you know, kind of pseudo-scientific, pseudo-mathematical models. And now, you know, many of them have been defeated uh, recently. So we really need to come up with new ways of understanding what is happening today. This, you know, book is an attempt to, to do that by looking at certain um, inherent, innate contradictions and how they've been diagnosed and, and, and how they've resulted in political crisis over the last 200 years. Can I, yes, can I, coming from a country, a small uh, Scandinavian country, uh, which is still kind of a strong, which still has a strong welfare state and with a tradition of, and a political history of, I think, the creation of the welfare state as, a, as maybe a response to the exact thing that you're talking about now, to fear, to humiliation, to the, uh, um, trying to build structures that would embed uh, people and create the counterbalance to to the market. And um, now, as you say, we live in a time where the, we don't have, our economic system doesn't look like that anymore. We don't have big industrial sector. We don't have strong trade unions. But what, so what do you see? What could, what could come instead? Because I'm also coming from, I guess, a secular tradition. I'm, I'm, I'm worried if, you know, religion is the, the answer, if religion is the, the comeback answer to yeah. this or, um, um, ethnic identity. I, sure. What is the, what is the well, new project well, I, that could Religion be, has never been yes. out of the frame. It's always been. Of course, of you know, course. Uh, yes, I know. Faith that. has manifested yes. itself in, in all kinds of ways. But, but One of the ways talking about which, solidarity, how do you find? Well, I think, you know, uh, the way in which socialism inherited the mantle of Christianity mm. by emphasizing charity, by emphasizing emphasizing empathy mm. for the weak, compassion for the weak, mm. and also solidarity. Mm. Um, the idea of equality is a straight borrowing from, from Christianity, the idea of equality before God. And I mean, we, we cannot conceive of socialism sure. without no, its I, philosophical I, yes, debt to, I, uh, to Christianity. I so religion has manifested itself. You know, religion for a long time has acted as a check against the more selfish, selfish ruthless, harsh instincts of human beings, uh, religions or philosophies have always identified the human animal as something dangerous, someone who needs to have clear moral ethical code. And that's one reason why religions were invented, all of them. Now, we uh, decided, we started to think in the late 18th century, we can live by the light of reason alone. And that reason alone is to, you know, will, will allow human beings to come together, frame their laws, um, and that the rule of law would become important. Now, it turns out that people can, you know, circumvent the rule of law. And this has been going on for a long time, that we don't actually, these principles, these institutions can be corrupted, can be undermined and corroded. So what is there to help people live ethically? So in a way, when people, uh, you know, protest against religion in its more kind of superficial uh forms of ethnic identity or assertion of either Islam or Hinduism or Buddhism. I think 
they're absolutely right in that they are basically assertions of some sort of ethnic racial identity. But at the same time, we cannot really discard the the most important inheritance of religion, which is really the idea of equality, the idea of compassion, the idea of solidarity, things we have systematically dis- 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 disregarded because we thought this makes for inefficient economies. This doesn't make capital grow. This doesn't make for fast economic growth. And this makes for inefficient, repressive systems. Well, it turns out that capitalism does all of these things too. And that capitalism can go very well with authoritarianism, as we've seen in China, as we've seen in many other countries. So, again, I mean, I think we need to recover ideas that for a long time in Sweden elsewhere have acted as a check, Mm. as a moderating force on the most violent and selfish tendencies unleashed by capitalism and capitalist imperialism. Mm. And with the loss of socialism, again, I mean, that was a catastrophic loss um, post-89. The delegitimization of socialism was an incredibly foolish thing to have done in in that sort of triumphalist mode. Because what that did was, you know, the dialectic between socialism and capitalism has defined the modern world, has made for a degree of civilization. Otherwise, we've just had people killing each other, slaughtering each other, and two world wars, imperialism, genocide, you know, slavery. That was capitalism. Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com. That the, the only answer to that was very clearly people came up with in the 19th century that we need solidarity across 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 national borders or terrorism against or or you, yeah exactly do you so from the, seeing from the 21st century which is uh, maybe a century without clear where you don't have a clear plan or, the, or you should sort of discard of the maps that you had and you sort of have to have new forms of organizing organizing people around as you say maybe common interests or emotional interests do you have a, a vision for i mean if you say that modernity was a grand scheme so if there was a narrative that, that and that everything had to find its place in that narrative and that that's proven to be problematic or leading to genocidal uh, wars um so so the, would you think there's a system of how people should live that's not a system but that's sort of a, a set of rules or, or, or agreements of much smaller do you have a vision for for yeah, the good look, life I mean, democracy, basically um, you know one reason why democracy has succeeded in Scandinavian countries or has been an enduring institution because um, they conform to the original model of democracy which are small states face-to-face um, relations between the rule and the and, 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 and the rulers um, a degree of national cohesion which is possible in, in in small places so democracy once it turns into this spectacle of once every five years once every four year elections um, you know parliaments which are then easily manipulated by 
vested interests that we've seen over and over again. That is a caricature. That is simply not democracy. So scale is a problem. It's a scale. Scale is a huge problem. And I, and I think it really the feelings of powerlessness and humiliation many people feel today, it is because they feel that there is no one to represent them. That's why they're turning to figures like Donald Trump or, 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 or Modi or uh, voting for politically suicidal um, things like Brexit. Out of a f- sense of fear and, and, and desperation and, and, and powerlessness and definitely anger, um, because democracy is not working for them. And, you know, how does democracy work? It can only work if it is something that, you know, is confined to smaller places, something that comes up from above rather than something imposed from above. From below. From, from below. Yeah. Um, where people feel part of a political community, feel represented, feel cared for, um, and therefore can also exercise their duties as citizens. But, you say, but what you say is basically there has been a huge unlearning process of what it means to be political, actually, or political Absolutely. human I think there's being. been a massive depoliticization, you know, what we've but seen. Not in party politics, but, but to understand that this is your place and, yeah. and to yeah. live with each other, that means that you're... I mean, this is where, you know, uh, Rousseau is important because his answer to the problem of... Uh, competitive, hyper-individualistic society built upon vanity, uh, imitation, uh, competition was, okay, you know, we need a political community. We need people to come together and feel some degree of obligation to each other. Now, we've lost sight of that, you know. Of course, there have been corruptions of that political ideal, but this sort of embracing of the market as the ultimate arbiter and the individual as entrepreneur has been catastrophic for the political health of our of our societies. You know, um, the, the 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 problems of living together, and increasingly diverse societies, um, they have been systematically neglected, leaving the scope, leaving space wide open for all kinds of you know, hyper nationalists, far right demagogues, you know, offering some sort of bogus solidarity and identity. So I want to, uh, following on that, I want to go back to something you said before about the um, kind of mismatch between the expectations and and what people get back from uh, this economic and political system that we live with now. So do you, do you think we need a lowering of expectations? Uh, is that one of the problems that we, there's just not space for everyone to... Well, what's the expectation? Happiness no, or wealth? No, wealth or... Um, Freedom, also happiness, individ- the individual project. Yeah, yeah, happiness. I guess happiness. That can we? What's the? Where should we? What's the other well, narrative? I think, you know, it's, it's very other, difficult to to lower expectations. I think so too. You know, once yes. you once you raise them. I remember growing up in India in the 1970s and 80s, but all my expectations from life were defined by what I saw around myself. Hmm. Um, so they were very modest expectations. I expected to join the government, or if I was good in science or maths, become a doctor or an engineer. Uh, Your father was a, a railroad. Uh, yeah. yeah, so those were the options available to me. Mm. Now, a same person living in the same place in small towns across India is exposed to a wide variety of lifestyles around the world. He can access, you know, any different mode of existence, and obviously, most attractive, most seduced by the rich and the powerful, and those people, and you know, the the the, the ideology uh, that is being offered and that is being disseminated by the 
media, by television channels, by the advertising, by billboards. All of you travel around India, you see these billboards offering you the condominium with a security guard, two cars in the garage. They're constantly telling you that you can do this, you can make this, you can you can achieve all that. So expectations have shot through the roof. What in many cases we are looking at really is a sort of revolution of rising expectations that cannot be fulfilled. Um, you know, not just because of environmental constraints, um, you know, we just need a couple more planets uh, to, to, to fulfill those kinds of aspirations for consumerism um, that billions of people around the world have today. But it's also politically um, unsustainable. They will just end up empowering people like people like Modi. So this is, this is another problem that with the abolishing of horizons and limits to individual life, by exposing people to a kind of global utopia of material plenitude and consumerism, you've really also left them completely disoriented social, social, you know, psychologically. Uh, there are no local landmarks like I had uh, through which they can reorient themselves, find a place in the world again, find a secure place in the world again. So this is, this is another you know, phenomenon which does not feature in much political socio-economic analysis of the situation, but it is a sort of existential phenomenon. So the, the fundamental uprooting of, of a place that, that then leads to uh, violence or, or resistance. Absolutely, uh, yeah. And the sense of impotence is greater, I think. You know? um, and That goes to the male rage. Very, well. very deeply so. And, the, the, true, and likewise, yeah. the urge to find scapegoats, mm. uh, the, the, the rage that many people in India, for instance, men manifest towards women, towards weaker people, mm. is really a direct outcome of this sort of feeling of impotence, the, which comes from the extravagant promise of empowerment. That when that is satisfied, not realized, when it is frustrated, that leaves people more angry than they were previously. But isn't that also a reaction to something that is inherently good, namely that women are um, claiming their rights and are challenging? Very much so. But you know, only a tiny minority of women are actually doing that. You know, relative to uh, the large yes, but that that idea exists and very much so. Oh, that is a big source of male rage. I I wrote about that in the book. You know, women in public Mm. sphere, Mm. women assuming jobs. Mm. Uh, This really strikes at the heart of their male identity, which is still made up of many feudal patriarchal elements. That you know, women's places in the home. What are they doing in public space? Stealing our jobs. Um, the same kind of feeling that many people have towards minorities uh, in this country and elsewhere, that they are stealing our jobs, people have towards women as well, that they should not be, they should not be in the workplace, they should not be dressed like this. Uh, so there's this kind of rage too, that is, uh, and it's, it's, it's of course connected to their own feeling of inadequacy. So when you say there's a, a commonality between, for example, the... Uh Rage against the Rohingya in Myanmar and AFD in Germany and uh, look, um, I mean, you cannot understand Rohingya, uh, the Rohingya. current crisis, yeah. without understanding the. I've been traveling there um, and, and 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 trying to write about it or thinking about it at this point. You cannot understand that without understanding how the global economy has come to Myanmar, is starting to undermine the old society uh, where the monasteries had a big big place. And um, the monks who now feel their power, authority being eroded, are making alliances with various 
mobilizers of ethnic racial identity uh, and engaging in ethnic cleansing. So, you know, all this phenomena that we see, the distrust of the outsider, the search for internal, external enemy, it is not just something that we see at this particular point at the global conjuncture, you know, where you can talk about the, 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 the search for the dangerous immigrant or the dangerous internal enemy in Germany or in Myanmar. But we've also seen this before. We saw that in the late 19th century, first of all, when global capitalism entered its first crisis, the search for scapegoats, the search for the internal enemy. Now, this is the person responsible for what we are suffering. The easy kind of scapegoat. Um, and we see this, I mean, in, in many ways, this is anthropology with its understanding of tribal societies and the mechanism of scapegoating. There are better able to explain what is going on today. Um, the interesting, that's an interesting point, I guess, so, because in the very simplistic version of what you say, when that simplicity is always a problem, is that you would say, oh, you're in favor of a traditional form of um, life and you, the caste system or, or this, the Buddhist monks yeah. in charge. But the, um, obviously that the cruelty in human nature doesn't, Go away. Well, this is it's the, not new. Yeah, I mean, so, so there's, this is a system, as you, as you explained, this is a very sophisticated system that's based on suppressing a lot of needs or, or ambitions for the sake of, um, survival, of stability. 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 Yeah. Um, and, and, but you're saying you should use that. You should study that. What's, what's your point? No, also? I mean, or, look, I mean, I think when you critique modernity, the, 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 the easiest charge is that you must be in favor of some traditional mode which is ridiculous. I'm pointing to the contradictions and tensions of, of, of the modern project and saying, well, we can resolve that by recovering certain modes of thinking, certain modes of being in the world that we have neglected too much. You know, certain that, needs, maybe. Certain needs, absolutely. Mm. Certain human needs mm. uh, for stability. For identity. Not everyone wants to be an entrepreneur. Not everyone wants to work that hard, you know, um, which is the case, especially in, 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 in sort of places like India and, and where people, you know, work for a little while and they work in close proximity to their families. They don't want to leave their families and go and work in a factory somewhere. So uh, there are many different human needs. The idea that we should all be in a particular way, that we should all remake ourselves. This is a mad, this is a mad notion. So here we are condemned to modernity, condemned to a degree of industrialization, urbanization. But are we all going to be following the model of Europe and the and, and, and United States with the awareness that that model has been arrived at after a lot of violence. Do we in our societies like India or Indonesia or Myanmar, largely rural, largely agrarian, have a different model to pursue? Do we have the freedom? Do we have the scope to understand what we actually need for our local circumstances and conditions. Can Afghanistan be an industrialized country? No, it can't. But exactly. that is the idea that it will be, which is utterly ridiculous. But it's, Even India cannot be an industrialized country now. You know, Even India cannot be that. Well, it's fine because industrialization is over, so you can be a post-industrial country. Well, you, can, you can jump into that. No, uh, but I would like to ask another, make another argument because I, I think, that, I mean, some economists and uh, political economists now would say that the crisis... Uh, within the West is because globalization now benefits not uh, Western Europe and the US anymore, but it benefits the rising middle classes in in, in China and in, in Asia, more broadly, more broadly speaking. So it's a backlash against these countries catching up. And also, uh, so I'm, I'm just wondering how you think about that, because looking at the last decade, 
uh, it's, I mean, it, it created these things that you're talking about. It created this anger, but it also lifted uh, mil- hundreds of millions of people from abject poverty. Uh, yeah, but that is a problem, you see. You know, most people use their argument to say, what are you complaining about? It's when people are lifted out of poverty that their expectations arise. Yes. You know, yeah. that becomes a political problem. Right. But you, would, you, but, India, you, but you wouldn't want them to stay in poverty, obviously. Well, I mean, why would anyone think that? No, no. You know? No, I'm not thinking exactly. that. This I'm is, not this, thinking that. Yeah. I'm just saying that... But you hear that, that a lot. This is you hear, you, I hear that constantly. Yeah, no, you know, what are you complaining about? The BBC, yeah, yeah, those yeah. people have been lifted out. I'm saying, how does that matter? Yeah. How does it matter to someone who's been laid off in the United States? What are you going to tell that person? Mm-hmm. I'm really sorry you've been laid off. You've lost your identity. You've lost your sense of community. You've lost your income. You've lost your job. But hey, mm-hmm. those hundreds of millions of people in India and China are being lifted out of poverty. No, no, so apparently it doesn't matter. To it them. doesn't matter. Yeah. And even for people who have been lifted out of poverty, that is a statistic. Mm-hmm. What is actually happening to their lives mm-hmm. once they're lifting out of poverty? Mm-hmm. And what does it do actually, what does it mean to just live above the poverty line? Does that make your life qualitatively better? That is a question. Nobody can answer that because that is not how economics or the, 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 the discipline of economics mm-hmm. even measures human lives, you know. I know people who have been lifted out of poverty, mm. who move to the big city, they get more salaries, but the quality of life collapses because they live in a slum, they can't bring their families, they can't marry. Mm. Often those people choose to go back below the poverty line, go back to their villages. So this uh, propaganda by by various sort of globalists and globalizers that, you know, globalization is this great process, lifting hundreds of millions out mm. of poverty, really does not really understand just how the actual journey out of poverty, out of subsistence economies, into, you know, a kind of limbo where you're waiting for jobs to materialize and mm-hmm. don't materialize, which is now the story in, in, in a place like India. So when economists say that, okay, this has happened, you know, uh, middle classes have benefited, but we know now that globalization is also unstoppable, dynamic, unpredictable force that even in those places where globalization has brought millions of people out of poverty, it has left them with no future prospects because of automation, because of mechanization. So we can't employ those hundreds of millions of people that have been lifted out of poverty, that have had their subsistence economies destroyed. So there is the other side of that process. Yeah. You know. So I think we are looking at processes that are really beyond human control in many ways, you know, which have caused these kind of large geographic imbalances uh, which have led which have sort of unleashed technological processes that again work against these human needs which are primarily those of stability community identity belonging I mean needs that have been paramount for much of human history but the notion that you know there should be fast economic growth people should reinvent themselves people should retrain themselves for the new jobs it's all incredibly crude propaganda Meant to benefit who? The people who are essentially, you know, have been benefiting from this whole process for the last three decades or so. Who does automation benefit? People who can lay off as many people, spend less and less on salaries and wages and increase their, and increase their profits. It's extraordinary the way the finance industry is taking over our our, our lives. And sorry, go on. No. So, uh, 
So I, I, my question, I guess, would be, I mean, your, your point was interesting that you said communism or socialism is per se also a reaction of modernity against itself. So it's not, a, it's not a for, so it's not, it's, it's a corrective within the model. Um, but, but today there's actually, there's not even a, a political idea. There's no, 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 no thinking of resistance. And so even socialism and communism, let me say that they were not attentive. They were not alert to, to environment. Exactly. Yeah. There were many things that were not, they were also ideologically stubborn and rigid. Yeah. Yeah. Because they were born of out of uh, very modernist absolutely, thinking. So. Absolutely. So, so going back to what we talked about before, about literature, um, for example, as a source of, um, addressing more spiritual or, or emotional or, or, or all over human needs would, what's the, and, and you talk about what, what's at stake is that it's a huge intellectual pro project of retelling the story of what, what humanity is or could be or should be. What's the, what's the scope? What's where are the sources? What's, is, is, is literature a way to do that? Are, are there writers? I think so. I mean, I think that? we need or more of, what's the, I, I, I what's feel the way we need more of the humanities in our discussions about the, about the world. Uh, we need the insights of literature. We need to understand that the human self is an unstable, very dynamic being. And again, you know, going back to that question of poverty, you know, you can desire um, a different life for yourself. But when you get that life, you may not desire it anymore. You may want something else. You may want something that's back. Proust tells us that story. Uh, Flaubert tells us that story about the inconstancy of desire. So you need to tell, teach people, as, as Karen said, you need to teach people loss. Absolutely. Uh, yeah. Or death. Yeah. yeah. The tragic uh, side or of things. The tragic side of things. Yeah. Can I say that? <laughs> no, you <laughs> What? <laughs> you said, no, you said something. How do you how do you rate lower expectations? How do you how do you change the the? Yeah. Um, I guess I'm wondering how do you create? I mean, because I guess people have different. I I don't. I think people, as you that people are complex and that we have a multitude of expectations and yeah. we have an economic system answering to a couple of those, uh, which I think are real and yeah. kind of unstoppable. But. Yeah. I'm, I'm very much interested in your way of thinking about, uh, I guess, dignity and uh, humili uh, um, humiliation. Dig extremely strong, yeah. uh, something that you're looking for and something that you're really, really averse to and that creates a lot of strong emotions. And how to, but, but what kind of, uh, because also going back to your argument about competing uh, ideolo ideologies that, um, that we don't have anymore, that was a way of channeling yeah. at least different ways of thinking about society. Now, how do you think about dignity in, yeah, in, in yeah. political terms? Well, you know, how do you make that into a political Exactly. Project? I mean, there, are all, there have been all kinds of interesting solutions to this problem because we have located dignity far too much in the acquisition of strength, hmm. of power. And it's interesting that Gandhi's main critique was that you can find dignity in weakness. You can find dignity in passive resistance. You know, you don't have to retaliate. You don't have to assume power and strength in order to find political dignity. And I think at a time when so many impossible dreams of self-empowerment or self-strengthening have been spread universally, you know, offering individuals power, strength, wealth, all of these things. Um, an ethic that emphasizes that dignity can also be found in modesty, in a sense of humility, Is important, and that is where you know uh, I'm. I'm not so critical of traditional religion. Mm. Um, I'm critical of religion mobilizes political identity in, in, in and allied to various ethnic racial projects. 
but uh, traditional religion does teach us that the virtues of, of of austerity the virtues of humility the virtues of modesty and is suspicious of strength um we have really lost a whole philosophical religion i mean we we i i don't think we we realized the extent to which we are spiritually bereft and philosophically bereft um because we lost a connection to this long religious and philosophical tradition which is also we, interesting that if current says that she's a secular person i wonder what that really means um with that as opposition to well it doesn't mean that i'm a neoliberal <laughs> it's not it's no, not, but, not but, you're, but it doesn't yeah, but it doesn't mean that you're not sort of that you're not aware of the spiritual no, needs of but, course not. but this, this is a sort of a dichotomy that is often used so um, to make a point yeah which is maybe not the point that's important to raise. But we talked to um, uh, Peter Pomeranzel the other day and he said, when looking at social media, which is also a channel for rage uh, yeah. in this time, and he said that he had read some study that saying that the only emotion that trumps rage is a sense of awe. Yeah. And uh, I was th- I was just been thinking about that these last days. How do you, um, <laughs> how do you mobilize <laughs> around the sense of of awe um, and what, what what is needed for that, and you do, you do need something else than uh, I guess the, the rationality of the market yeah. to um, <laughs> to get to that feeling. It's relatively all free. It's, the it's market, all, yeah, but it's not. But um, yes, I'm I'm much more wary of, of religion, I guess, um, and also thinking about the situation for women and uh, how. Um, How that works in yeah, religion institutionalized, yes. um, you know, can be an incredibly and has been an incredibly oppressive mm. thing. So, you know, there are many reasons to be to be wary of that. And yet, when I find religious people who are not, who don't go to temple, don't go to mosque, don't go to church, but do have a sense that there is a transcendental authority in their lives uh, to which they are accountable, in however, you know rational or weird ways that might manifest itself um, and I see that in you know sometimes nuclear scientists turn out to be religious people believing in that way I feel suddenly I, I, I feel I have to say I feel more safe with them than with you know supposedly secular people who believe in uh, the pursuit of self-interest or who believe that the markets are, are, are really very important for ascertaining uh, you know who should win essentially um, and that government should really step back. I mean, I find that really scary. Mm. Uh, this faith in the markets, I think that's more irrational and more dangerous than belief in God um, because that is determining the choices of societies around the world and, 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 and condemning them to endlessly. We know that the markets produce in deep inequality and that markets are not rational things at all. And yet there has been this extraordinary faith placed in them and kind of rejection of the government's role in social welfare and redistribution. Um, so we, we really have kind of lived through an intellectual ideological revolution over the last three decades. And we're kind of emerging bleary-eyed from it. And, um, you know, as looking at the, at the, at the ruins that, of that experiment and the people flourishing in those ruins like 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 Trump and the and the Brexiteers, in the ruins of modernity to ruins of quote modernity. one to read quote one of your titles in a different way yeah. um, of of the ruins of empire of the previous book. But 
So maybe to, towards the end to try to figure out how specifically, I'm, I'm just interested how specifically you would try to reformulate what's necessary so to, in the last, to wrap it up. What is the left to what's, do? What should what, the left do? What, I mean, that, that's one question. No, that, no, what, no what that's is, my question. Okay, what is the left to do? Is there a yeah. left? What's the project? What's well, the project? I think the left made a huge mistake. I'm speaking of the social democratic left. Um, you can see that in country after country. In France, we can see that in Germany by allying itself to the neoliberal project and thinking this is the way to go, whether Blair in, 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 in the UK, Clinton in America, Schroeder in, in, in Yeah, in but Germany. that's kind of over now and now everybody's looking for something else. So that was well, the past, mistake of the past. Yeah, that so. was, yeah. I mean, there is a kind of correction right now happening, uh, which in some countries is being supported by voters. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think Corbyn in this country represents a kind of correction. Um, now, how politically sustainable it is, Nobody knows, you know, he might be prime minister tomorrow, but he, he may also be a disaster as prime minister because we know that sovereign power does not reside at 10 Downing Street. Britain is not free to make decisions about its economy. It can nationalize all the banks again. It can nationalize the railways, but private investors, private capital will have something to say about that. And it might respond by abandoning Britain altogether uh, and thereby depriving Britain of great source of its um, its revenues. So we are all beholden, in, in, you know, this is the problem with the, with, the, with the left program right now, to all kinds of global forces. So it's very hard to imagine. This is why I hesitate from prescribing solutions. Yeah. Because it's very hard to prescribe national solutions without also, um, you know, insisting on a revolution on a global scale, mm. on a kind of far-reaching mm. Um, kind where people feel that their political community the communities they have formed are empowered again to make decisions I mean Brexit in many ways is a desire to take back control however perversely framed and articulated it was but the the problem is in this context taking back control just means going after the Polish immigrants Mm -hmm. going after Muslims uh, becoming more racist openly so also based on lies. Based on lies and, 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 and complete um, falsehoods, in fact. So, but nevertheless, we should acknowledge that there is that desire for, um, you know, again, a kind of political community where people do take decisions. And that's where the left, with its traditions of mobilizing, with its traditions of, you know, bringing together people and energizing the young, especially. We saw that the Sanders mm. campaign, we saw that the Corbyn. So there are interesting signs here and there of the emergence of, I wouldn't say a new kind of thinking, but an attempt to recover some of the ideals of, you can call it socialism, you can call it social welfareism, that for a long time did manage to keep the destructive tendencies of capitalism under check. That so is a modest project, you know? It is yeah. a modest project yes. because you yeah. say you have to go far, way, way back yeah. to, yeah. to come to some real solutions. Yeah. Um, they end up in the problems, yeah. with the problems but, you know, of, my, my solutions thing is of the 20th that, that socialism always, uh, socialism really did foreground um, certain very important religious and ethical ideas and that that role it performed, it, it, its role in state institutions like the Soviet Union, Eastern Europe, China, was a disaster. 
uh, you know, it created horribly oppressive societies when it became institutionalized. It, it reproduced all the corruptions of capitalism, class of people who benefited a huge, great deal and so on. But as an idea, as a set of ideals, that can be also institutionalized in certain institutions, even within a market economy. We saw that first with Bismarck. I mean, you know, there, there are ways to make people feel that they are simply not being exploited for the benefit of the industrialists or, or big capitalists. It's, there are ways to make them feel that they are also part of a political community. And now we need them more urgently than before. So that's the social democratic uh, amen here, finally. That's, that's where we always <laughs> end up. Always. It's a compromise. <laughs> It's a compromise. And, you know, I think uh, we can best hope for something as, 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 you know, modest as that, because it's too late now to, to, to imagine utopians, mm -hmm. um, a, a, a kind of left program with a greater regard for the environment. Um, you know, the sort of old style leftism really did not have much time for the critiques of industrialism, mm -hmm. uh, the critiques of essentially, you know, that whole model of productivity. Um, there has to be now a, a leftism that is that accommodates, that incorporates um, the, the green critique and that will help us think about what kind of economies do we want for ourselves. There's a question that's really urgent for, for countries like India because we are really on the cliff right now. People don't understand that we have reached an impasse, that economic growth, that story is over. Industrialization is not happening. Manufacturing is not happening. What do you do with a country of 1.2 billion people, a vast majority of which is young and has no jobs. What kind of economy do we have? There has to be some rethinking and radical rethinking about it. But we are still kind of in this trap. We're just thinking we can just do what other people did um, mm. and become an industrial powerhouse. And that is fantasy. That's a very dangerous fantasy. Pankaj, I'm sure we come back yes. to, uh, to work on that with you. Thank you for Thank your you time today. Thank you very much. It was really inspiring. Thank you. Thank you.